From beanies to carry bags and from shoes to caps, browse our shop now at tntradio.live. Basil Valentine and Compass on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Today is Monday the 13th of November and welcome to Compass with me, Basil Valentine, the voice of sanity. This is your World News Hour here on TNT. In today's programme, we will have the latest from the Middle East. We'll be asking what happens when the massacre finally stops in Gaza and how coverage of that conflict is radically different from the war in Eastern Europe. Also today, riots in Spain over a possible deal with Catalan separatists. A Chinese pro-democracy activist continues his campaign from London and Riyadh has hosted the first Saudi-Africa summit. But we begin today in Westminster, where British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has this morning announced a dramatic reshuffle of his cabinet of ministers. Controversial Home Secretary Suella Braverman, who dubbed people calling for a ceasefire in Gaza hate marches, has been sacked while former British Prime Minister David Cameron is set to become Foreign Secretary, returning to the political front line after he quit in 2016 when he failed to keep Britain in the European Union. James Cleverly makes way for David Cameron and takes over from Suella Braverman at the Home Office. The Guardian newspaper is reporting that Sunak has boosted Cleverly's status as a candidate to replace him. Cleverly liked being Foreign Secretary and may not have been keen on going to the Home Office, famously a graveyard for political careers. But having experience in both these senior departments would help any leadership bid. Braverman and Kemi Badenoch, among others, are both gearing to run as right-wingers in a leadership contest that could take place before the next general election. Cleverly may now be the leading candidate for MPs in the mainstream or centre of the governing Conservative Party, although having Sunak's quasi-endorsement may not actually help him with the party membership. For his part, David Cameron has put out a lengthy statement on the X platform about his appointment as Foreign Secretary. We are facing a daunting set of international challenges, including war in Ukraine and the crisis in the Middle East, he wrote. At this time of profound global change, it has really been more important for this country to stand by our allies, strengthen our partnerships and make sure our voice is heard. He went on to say Britain is a truly international country. Our people live all over the world and our businesses trade in every corner of the globe. Working to help ensure stability and security on the global stage is both essential and squarely in our own national interest. International security is vital for domestic security. Suella Braverman was sacked in no small part for her characterization of marches up and down the country calling for an end to the bombardment of Gaza and peace as hate marches. She said that members of Britain's Jewish community feel uncomfortable. But in an interview with the BBC, a young Jewish man identified as Max 
who was on the roughly one 800,000 strong demonstration on Saturday, had a very different opinion, as we can hear now. Yeah, I think this has been a, you know, a tremendously powerful day. I've been really, really happy to be part of such a large movement. You know, police have been saying, I think 300,000 people, organizers are estimating upwards of 500,000. Such a tremendous display of uh, a desire that, you know, showcases the British uh, public's desire to see peace in the Middle East, to see a ceasefire in the Middle East. I think it's been a very, very empowering protest today. Me personally also being part of the Jewish bloc. I found that to be very, very empowering. You're seeing in this country an increasing number of Jewish people who are standing up and fighting for Palestinian human rights, who understand that uh, Jewish liberation and Palestinian liberation are two interlinked struggles, just as the fight against anti-Semitism and the fight against Islamophobia are two interlinked struggles. So I've really been happy and, and felt affirmed in my Jewish values and my belief in justice and peace. And I think that the protest has been a tremendous uh, display of that and the British public's desire to see peace. So, Max, what do you make of the fact that there are members uh, of the governing party here in the UK, the Conservative Party, who have said that this march is disrespectful? Yeah, I don't really uh, see the case for this being a disrespectful march, to be honest. I think what is far more disrespectful is, uh, you know, on Armistice Day to be uh, perpetuating in the Middle East another war. You know, we are now in the UK commemorating the armistice of over 100 years ago, the uh, ceasefire then, as it were. And this is essentially uh, the, the same ethos that the protest is, is in line with. You know, I think what could be more in the spirit of Armistice Day than a desire to see the fighting end in the Middle East? Uh, you know, I think that this is, uh, this is, these are two very, very interlinked ideas, very interlinked uh, desires to see lasting peace in the world, not just 100 years ago, but also today. And I find it much more disrespectful to smear the protesters by saying that they are, that their goals are, are somehow contrary to those of Armistice Day. Than to claim uh, that, than, than to claim that Armistice Day is somehow in line with the consistent uh, government policy of the United Kingdom, which has been one that is enabling Max. a bombing campaign in Gaza that has had Max. disastrous humanitarian consequences. Max, you will know that since the war started, there has been a huge rise in anti-Semitic attacks in London. Have you, in the past month, month felt unsafe? Sorry, could you repeat that? Have you, in the past month, felt unsafe? There has been a huge rise in anti-Semitic attacks. There has indeed been a huge rise in anti-Semitic attacks. It's something that I think many members of my community in the United Kingdom have felt. Um, I've personally been lucky not to be personally subject to any of those attacks, but I certainly have friends and, and family who have been. I think there is a general feeling that, of course, must be taken seriously in the UK, where an increasing number of Jews are feeling unsafe. But what I want to say here is that that feeling of a lack of safety and that rising anti-Semitism is certainly not helped by the rhetoric of the government, by the rhetoric of those in the government who say that calling for a ceasefire is somehow anti-Semitic. You know, what, what picture does it paint of Jewish life when you say that pro-peace demonstrators are somehow a threat to Jews? I think it is much more anti-Semitic and much more of a threat of stoking anti-Semitism to conflate uh, the safety of Jews with the offensive actions of the, of the Israeli government with this uh, incendiary bombing campaign than uh, pretty much anything that I've seen at any of these protests, certainly. Max, did you receive any criticism from anyone in your community, your family, your peers, for attending today's march? Uh, I have, you know, I've certainly had my disagreements with members of my community. Obviously, this is a topic that is a very, very sensitive one in the Jewish community. I will say, though, that, uh, you know, I've been involved in 
movements for Palestinian justice, for Palestinian liberation, for an end to uh, the occupation and apartheid, which is the central message of NAMWA, the group that I'm a member of, uh, for several years now. And I think the atmosphere, you can certainly sense a palpable shift of atmosphere in the Jewish community right now. I think more and more people in the Jewish community, certainly in the Jewish community in the United Kingdom, are waking up to the fact that uh, our safety cannot come at the cost of Palestinian oppression, and uh, uh, indeed that our safety is interlinked with the safety and with the liberation of Palestinians. You know, you've seen more Jewish people now fight for Palestinian human rights in the UK than ever before, and I think Jewish people in the UK are being empowered to have a vocabulary to express their increased concern with the Israeli government's uh, you know, radical shift to the right, with their offensive uh, campaign in Gaza, and with their desire to see uh, Palestinians liberated. Max, it's been really interesting to hear your thoughts and very important too. Thank you very much for joining us. And we will return for a detailed update on the situation in Gaza later in the programme. But first, President Vladimir Zelensky has warned Ukrainians to prepare for new waves of Russian attacks on infrastructure as winter approaches. And he said troops are anticipating an onslaught in the eastern theatre of the war. A military spokesman said Russian attacks on the shattered eastern town of Advivika had eased in the past day, but were nevertheless likely to intensify in the coming days. And Ukrainian military intelligence said an explosion killed at least three Russian servicemen in the Russian-occupied southern town of Melitopol, which it described as an act of revenge by resistance groups. Zelensky issued his warning during his nightly video address a day after Russian forces carried out their first missile attack on the capital, Kyiv, in some seven weeks. We are almost halfway through November and must be prepared for the fact that the enemy may increase the number of drone or missile strikes on our infrastructure, Zelensky said. Russia is preparing for Ukraine, and here in Ukraine, all attention should be focused on defense, on responding to terrorists, on everything that Ukraine can do to get through the winter and improve our soldiers' capabilities. Last winter, about 10 months into Russia's special military operation, Russia made waves of attacks on power stations and other plants linked to the energy network prompting rolling blackouts in widely separated regions. Energy Minister German Galushenko said on Saturday that Ukraine will have enough energy resources to get through the winter, but added the question is how much future attacks can affect supplies. In his remarks, Zelensky hailed the heroic efforts of troops defending Advidvika under pressure from attempted Russian advances since mid-October. Pictures show buildings in the town reduced to shells. Military spokesman Alexander Stupin said the number of infantry attacks in the past 24 hours was half the level of earlier in the week, but that airstrikes are on the rise. The enemy suffered significant losses the day before yesterday and has to regroup, he told national television. The head of Ukraine's ground forces, General Alexander Shirsky, said on Telegram that Moscow's forces are more active in the Bakhmut sector and trying to recover lost positions. Bakhmut, north of the city of Donetsk, 
was captured by Russian forces in May after months of heavy combat, but Ukrainian troops have since retaken nearby villages. Russian accounts of the fighting on Sunday said its forces had repelled five Ukrainian attacks near Bakhmut. In Melitopol, a hub for Russian occupation forces, the blast killed three men at a meeting at a post office being used as a military headquarters. The dead were officers of Russia's National Guard or FSB intelligence service, according to the Ukrainian directorate. The Kingdom of Saudi Arabia has hosted its first ever Africa summit, underscoring Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman's growing focus on the continent. Leaders from more than 50 countries gathered in the Saudi capital Riyadh on Friday for the first summit aimed at developing relations and cooperations between the KSA and nations in Africa and promoting strategic partnerships. Leaders who attended the summit included the presidents of Nigeria, Kenya, Zambia, Djibouti and Mauritania and the prime ministers of Ethiopia and Niger, together with the foreign minister of Egypt. Details now in this report from CGTN. After announcing 50 billion US dollars investments in Africa on Thursday, Saudi Arabia launched the first Saudi African summit. Heads of states and representatives of most African countries participated in a meeting that drafted what Saudi Arabia called a game-changing investment strategy in the continent. The Kingdom of Saudi Arabia has provided more than $45 billion to support developmental and humanitarian projects in 54 African countries. We in Saudi Arabia are eager to develop our partnership with Africa to develop trade projects to support projects that would complement our economies. The Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia announced the Kingdom's commitment to further assist Africa in refinancing its debts as well as postpone some debt services. Mohammed bin Salman also announced plans to increase Africa's accessibility to all forms of energy. Between Saudi and Africa, we have the energy of the present and the energy of the future. Saudi Arabia has tremendous resources of fossil fuels. For the energy, renewable energy of the future, Africa has 40% of wind, solar, hydro, geothermal, renewable energy. Combining the energy resources of Saudi Arabia and Africa gives us the energy that we can use today to power our development. All participating heads of states have stressed the necessity to engage with regional conflicts as an essential mean to boost developmental efforts. I should underscore the intimate link that is woven between development and the peace. The issues of peace and security, particularly in Sudan, Somalia, Libya, the Sahel, Eastern of DRC, Mozambique and the fight against any recourse to violence for conflict resolution constitute the major concern of Africa. The summit helped in activating nine coordination and business councils as well as 16 committees which should speed Saudi-African partnerships. The Saudi-African summit aims at establishing strategic cooperation in several business sectors. The Kingdom says that in just two days, 250 agreements have been signed to inaugurate this plan. Adel Mahroui, CGTN. 
Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. You should hear what Greg Maybury is talking about. We talk of an impending third world war reaching fever at the pitch. Perhaps it's time for us all to come to terms with some little known history regarding the causes of the first two. Our past is not quite as cut and dried as our history books would have us all believe, which is an understatement of epic dimensions. I know this because I used to teach history. Although I wasn't aware of it at the time, I now know pretty much well everything that I ever taught my students about both wars was uh, a distortion of the truth at best, if not an outright lie, via a mission of inconvenient facts and realities. And the historical record was compiled to distort the truth, thereby keeping it hidden from future generations, and I might add there too from perhaps future history teachers like myself and those to come. The bottom line is that the great powers that be, past and present, do not want the critical masses discovering who the really bad guys were or are, what motivated them to instigate these wars, and how they were able to pull it all off without people smelling a rat. This so they could do it all over again when they deemed the occasion demanding it, and it now seems like that occasion has arrived again. The No-Fly Zone with Greg Maybury on today's News Talk. TNT Radio. Military families often sacrifice precious time away from loved ones while serving our country. And for those with children, the separation can be especially difficult. We were worried that with him leaving, that she would lose those connections with her dad. Some of life's best moments happen between parents, children, and the pages of a good book. United Through Reading provides that connection. You can watch your mom or dad read a book to you, and it almost feels like they're really there. We ensure they remain a consistent, meaningful part of their children's lives, no matter the distance. Just seeing Jacob recognize Daddy again after a long time just melted my heart. And now, as we're facing greater isolation from our loved ones, United Through Reading is also available to veterans. Learn more about United Through Reading and download our free secure app at unitedthroughreading.org. A better business tip from TNT Radio. News Talk Radio listeners are some of the most active and involved listeners of any format. TNT Radio listeners rely on TNT Radio often as their primary source of information. They trust TNT Radio and are highly engaged with the content. If you'd like more information about advertising on TNT Radio, simply fill out your details on our contact page and we'll be in touch. To find out more, go to tntradio.live. Interviews, news, and analysis of the day's global events. This is Compass with Basil Valentine on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. The humanitarian crisis in Gaza continues to deteriorate, and it is now no longer possible to accurately count the number of dead as health workers cannot reach bodies in the street without themselves being attacked. We have no idea how many now have been killed amid Israel's unrelenting and wanton destruction, but we can confirm that journalist Ahmed Fatima has been killed this morning in an airstrike in Gaza, this according to the Quds News Network. CNN has spoken to Qada al-Zanoun, who is a reporter for Al-Arabiya. They told the U.S. news network that they were in the Al-Shifa hospital, saying, Communication is very bad and almost impossible for us to report what is happening in the hospital and its yards. We barely have cell lines, but no internet. No one can move or dare to go out of the hospital. 
The staff here are aware of many strikes that are happening around the hospital. We see smoke coming up from those strikes, and we know that there are people in some of those buildings, but ambulances do not make their way out of the hospital because during the last days, an ambulance was hit on its way out of the hospital. The Palestine Red Crescent Society has issued a statement on social media claiming that heavy gunfire has continued in the vicinity of the Al-Quds Hospital. It says that a convoy intended to evacuate patients has had to stop. It wrote, heavy gunfire continued in the vicinity of Al-Quds Hospital in the Tal Al-Hawa area in Gaza City, and the sounds of shelling and violent explosions were held in the area. The convoy of vehicles that set off from the southern Gaza Strip towards the hospital, accompanied by the Red Cross to secure the evacuation of patients and medical staff, stopped. It added that it would not be able to continue due to conditions around the hospital. Israel is facing mounting international pressure, including from its main ally, to do more to protect Palestinian civilians. In his strongest comments to date on the plight of civilians caught in the bombardment, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken told reporters on a visit to India, far too many Palestinians have been killed. Far too many have suffered these past weeks. Blinken is the highest ranking American official to suggest that the Palestinian Authority, which governs the West Bank under Israeli military supervision, should take over Gaza. Last month, he told a Senate committee that it would be good for an effective and revitalized Palestinian authority <clears throat> excuse me, to have governance and ultimately security responsibility for Gaza, where the PA has been powerless and unwelcome for the past 15 years. Last week, Blinken said again that Gaza should be unified with the West Bank under the Palestinian Authority. However, Avi Dichter, the Israeli agriculture minister and former head of Shin Bet said on television over the weekend that Israel is prosecuting another Nakba or catastrophe like that of 1948 when hundreds of thousands of Palestinians were murdered and ethnically cleansed from their homeland, something Israel has previously denied ever happened. Diana Butu is a former legal advisor to the PLO, and she spoke to Al Jazeera at the weekend about what might happen when the massacre finally stops, as we can hear now. So this Netanyahu post-war plan for Gaza, the Americans have already said they think it's a bad idea for Israel to reoccupy the Gaza Strip and, and have asked for clarification reportedly. Does this plan, in your view, is it a clear plan? And, and why do you think he's making this statement now? I think that he's making this statement because he knows that his political life is in jeopardy. Look, before uh, the bombing attack on October the 7th, Netanyahu's polling rates were very, very, very low with thousands, tens of thousands of Israelis coming out and protesting against him. Now we see that these numbers, while they've gotten lower, people are definitively blaming Netanyahu for uh, for all of this. And as a result, he knows that his political future 
will come to an end the minute that there is a ceasefire. And this is why he's pushing to have this as long as possible. The other reason, of course, is because he is part of the ultra-right-wing fascist group, um, the fascist bloc, and the ultra-right-wing inside his government has been pushing him to re-establish Israeli settlements in the Gaza Strip. So you have the combination of these two things, of him losing his coalition if he doesn't remain, and as well losing his own political life and potentially go to prison um, if he if he uh, doesn't leave the Gaza Strip. Right. And so this is why he's doing it at this point. Right. And one of his ministers, we heard one of his ministers talk about this being Gaza's Nakba. How how worrying is that to you? Well, this isn't it's not just him. Most of the Israeli leaders have been not only expressing it, but we've seen what plans that they have. They've expressed things like that they want to flatten Gaza. They've said that this is a question of not accuracy, but as much damage as possible. We've heard them say that Gaza is going to be smaller in size. And we've heard them talk about expelling Palestinians into the Sinai Peninsula. We've even heard the so-called left wing talk about other countries taking in Palestinians as well. So this is obviously very troublesome. The problem is, is that nobody within the international community is actually listening right. to what the Israeli leaders are saying very clearly. Yeah. And some in the international community are still talking about the, the, the two-state uh, solution being revived in, in some quarters, the supporters of Israel, it seems that that two, idea of a two-state solution is more distant than ever. It's The question is Palestinian freedom, and this is where people need to be working in the aftermath of Israel stopping its genocide, stopping its ethnic cleansing. It's time for the world to realize that this is the result of 75 years of ethnic cleansing. And if they really want to see peace, then Palestinians need to have their freedom. This is where efforts need to be put after we secure Israel's stopping of the bombing campaign. What Israel's done is completely illegal, and it remains illegal despite their attempts to try to make it legal. It's not. This is where our energy must be focused. First, to stop the bombing. Second, to make sure that Palestinians are free. And so what does that, does that Palestinian freedom look like? Uh, you know, what are the options today? Uh, is, it, is it, you know, equal rights for all within the same state, like the case of South Africa, for example? Is that, is that feasible today? Well, Father, it's it's up to Palestinians to decide. Um, and this is where we have to, as Palestinians, have to put make our voices heard and, and known. Um, it's no longer up to the international community. It's no longer up to a false negotiations process. It's time for the world to listen to Palestinians, hear what they want, and put into place a system that undoes the system of apartheid that Israel has created for 75 years. It's time for Palestinians to finally be free. It, it, you say it's up to Palestinians, Diana, to decide. What, what role for Palestinian leaders, what role for the Palestinian Authority specifically? We heard Arab leaders in Riyadh yesterday say that the Palestinian Authority is the sole legitimate representative of the Palestinian people. Is it, though? And, and can it represent Palestinian people as a whole in its current configuration? Actually, at this point in time, so it's the Palestine Liberation Organization that is the representative. But at this time, it's very difficult for people to say that they are the, the sole voice because so many Palestinian factions are not included 
in the PLO. But but beyond that, the importance is that right now what the U.S. is trying to do is they're trying to put in a pseudo-Palestinian government, one that they like, into the Gaza Strip. And I can, I can tell you that there's going to be no Palestinian leader that wants to be seen as entering the Gaza Strip on the back of an Israeli bulldozer, on the back of an Israeli tank. That's just simply not going to happen. But more importantly, this is the same Palestinian authority that on October the 6th, that the United States had been had been maligning, that had, they had effectively turned into persona non grata. So it's like they pull out this puppet when they want it and then put it away when they don't want it. This is where I mean, what, this is what I mean when I say it's up for Palestinians to decide. We need to have our own internal elections. We need to decide what shape and form it is of our freedom that it's going to look like. But first and foremost, the bombing needs to end and this apartheid system must come to an end. We're going to take a break for the headlines now. When we come back, how the mainstream media has sanitized reportage of the Gaza genocide. We'll be right back. Now, TNT Radio News. Chill now, it's done. Let's go. I, I got news for you. News. Matt Boyland here with a look at your TNT headlines. More than a million protesters have marched through cities around the world, calling for a ceasefire in Gaza, where Israel has killed more than 11,000 Palestinians. US President Joe Biden will meet with Chinese leader Xi Jinping in California later this week. And former US President Donald Trump has filed a motion to have his forthcoming trial for election subversion broadcast live to the American people. Globalist agendas, democratic rights at risk, corruption, propaganda, it never stops. Listen to TNT Radio anywhere you go. Ask Alexa or Google to play TNT Radio or download the TNT Radio app for free from the App Store or Google Play. Today's news talk, this is TNT Radio. And welcome back to Compass with me, Basil Valentine, today, Monday the 13th of November. The reporting of the ongoing Gaza massacre has been very different from the way the conflict in the Ukraine has been covered by corporate media. While social media has scenes of unimaginable human suffering, including to children and infants, Western media not only ignores these and many other aspects of the unfolding tragedy, but also downplays the off-the-charts casualty numbers, as we can hear now from Mark Owen-Jones. Well, I think a key aspect of dehumanization is also marginalization. If you can make a people invisible, if you can make their suffering disappear, then you're going to basically be controlling how much sympathy the public have for those people. And I was, for example, examining the front pages of a number of the, the, the British press, including the Daily Mail, which is one of the most circulated newspapers in the UK. And I found in the first 14 days of the, the conflict, or the war rather, that they did not mention once on the front page uh, the cumulative total of Palestinians killed in Gaza. Okay, and this is despite mentioning the number of uh, Israelis who were killed on October the seventh and thereabouts uh, several different times. So I thought this, to me, was a really striking example of how, for example, uh, Palestinians are removed from the picture; they're removed from suffering. It's almost as if, uh, you know, uh, the Israeli suffering was was the only kind of suffering that was worth mentioning on the front page of these newspapers. And I think we shouldn't take that lightly. I'm not saying that you know these figures weren't mentioned uh, in the paper in, on, on a different page, but I think we all know that the 
front page of the headline is a really important positioning. It, it's what many people read. It's the only thing some people read. And it also gives us insight into the editorial process. What does that newspaper want us to think about what's going on in Gaza? And this is just one example uh, of a number. And that doesn't even start to mention the use of language, the dehumanizing nature of language. And this is another thing I'd really like to mention. What I've noticed, even in sort of the more quality papers in the UK, like The Guardian, Often they will preface what Hamas did with terms like brutal and massacre. Mm. But when it comes to, for example, the Israeli bombing of, of Gaza, which has killed over 10,000 people in horrific, brutal ways, terms like brutal are never used. It's always things like precision strike or collateral damage, right? So there's this kind of, you know, double speak going on when reporting about Israeli atrocities that is not used when it comes to, uh, you know, those perceived atrocities carried out by Palestinians. And, and this is not accidental, you know, this is, you know, how, how writing is constructed to actually marginalize the suffering of Palestinians. And this has been an ongoing uh, issue in how Western media generally has portrayed what's going on in Palestine. And it's unacceptable. Sadly, Palestine isn't the only place where war crimes have been committed. New research into alleged war crimes in Myanmar has concluded that the majority of senior commanders in the Myanmar military many of whom now hold powerful political positions in that country, were responsible for crimes including rape, torture, killings and forced disappearances carried out by units under their command between 2011 and 2023. The research by the Security Force Monitor, SFM, a project run by Columbia Law School's Human Rights Institute, says that 64 percent that is 51 out of 79, of all Myanmar's senior military commanders are responsible for war crimes. It claims that the most serious perpetrator of human rights violation is General Mayor Tun Ko, Myanmar's deputy prime minister. Former defence minister and a member of the ruling military council, it has been six years since a murderous crackdown in the Rakhine state forced more than 750 Rohingya Muslims, half of them children, across the border and into refugee camps in Bangladesh. The violence carried out by the Myanmar military, which has been described as a textbook example of ethnic cleansing by the United Nations, saw entire villages razed, tens of thousands killed, and women and children gang-raped. More now on the fight for justice in this report from Al Jazeera. They say they have no hope of ever getting justice for their loved ones in their homeland. So they've come to the Philippines. Five members of Myanmar's Chin ethnic group are suing their country's leader, General Ming Ong Liang, and eight military commanders for war crimes. Wu Tong Dian says his nephew, uh, Chun Bia Kum, was murdered by Myanmar soldiers while on his way to help put out a fire. According to eyewitness, they shot him two times at his chest and they cut off his finger, took off his wedding ring and stolen his watch and cell phone. Myanmar has been in a state of civil war since the military seized power in 2021 from the democratically elected government of Aung San Suu Kyi. The complainants say their relatives are just some of hundreds killed in predominantly Christian Chin state and entire villages have been burned. An international humanitarian law in the Philippines allows for the prosecution of war crimes perpetrated elsewhere. It would be a landmark case should the Philippines Department of Justice decide to move forward with a trial, 
especially since there are allegations of human rights violations here as well that have not been investigated. The Philippines has no intention of rejoining the ICC. President Ferdinand Marcos Jr. has refused to cooperate with the International Criminal Court as it seeks to investigate possible crimes during former President Rodrigo Duterte's anti-narcotics campaign. If at this point a state is not willing, at some point it may actually seize the moment and say that we're going to prosecute this. And this is uh, precisely a, a case uh, that we think uh, the president can use to prove that the Philippines is in fact willing and able to prosecute atrocity crimes. No matter what the outcome is, Lian says the fact that they're able to make a step towards bringing Myanmar's military junta to justice is in itself an achievement. Barnabilo, Al Jazeera, Manila. A group of Catholic bishops has signed a letter calling on civil authorities in Hong Kong to release a prominent Catholic campaigner and businessman incarcerated for his pro-democracy stance. The letter, which contains signatures from 10 prelates, including two cardinals from the United Kingdom, United States, Lithuania, Nigeria and India, among others, demands the release of Jimmy Lai, a prominent and successful Catholic layman who is a known vocal critic of the Chinese Communist Party. Jimmy Lai, aged 75, is a high-profile supporter of the Hong Kong pro-democracy movement, a writer, publisher and owner of Apple Daily, once Hong Kong's most popular independent Chinese-language newspaper, but now forcibly closed by the authorities. He has been repeatedly targeted by the Chinese Communist Party and the Hong Kong SAR authorities since 1990, when he launched his media company with a pro-democracy and anti-corruption focus. While Mr Lai has been in prison continuously since December 2020, following his arrest in August 2020, the Chinese would also like to lock up Finn Lau, who continues his campaign for Hong Kong democracy in London, as we can hear now from DW News. Free Hong Kong! Freedom for Hong Kong. From exile in London, Finn Lau fights for democracy in his home country. Despite the Hong Kong government offering a bounty of over 100,000 euros for his capture. On each Hong Kongers, including myself. This calculated move seeks to attach a price tag to my life, as well as my unwavering quest for democracy. It is a blatant transnational repression that aims at crushing all the voices that's pro-democracy across the globe. The Hong Kong authorities want to arrest the 30-year-old and put him on trial in Hong Kong. They claim that Finn Lau and seven other activists are subversive elements, working with foreign governments to infiltrate the state. We want to reclaim our destiny. We want to reclaim our freedom, reclaim our right to democracy, as well as self-determination. Hong Kong has had a special administrative status since its handover from Britain to China in 1997. It's based on a doctrine of one country, two systems. But this principle is showing cracks. Beijing is exerting increasing influence. Four years ago, hundreds of thousands of people from Hong Kong took to the streets to demonstrate against Beijing's interference. Finn Lau, a surveyor by profession, was one of the leaders at the time. 
he spent two days in police custody, after which he fled to Great Britain, the former colonial power. These days, it's only a small representative group protesting in London. In Hong Kong itself, hardly anyone dares to publicly criticize the Chinese government. We'll join the free world one day. After 1997, we have witnessed a systematic erosion of our freedoms, as well as democracy and autonomy. And then right now we have more than 1,600 political prisoners serving their lives in the Hong Kong prisons. Vin Lau speaks of intimidation, even in exile in London. He's cautious and believes it's quite likely that attempts could be made to kidnap him. He's spoken of an incident shortly after his arrival in Britain, where he was brutally beaten up by a group of strangers. The British government does not want to extradite Finn Lau, and the British Foreign Secretary says no attempts to intimidate and silence people will be tolerated. We've repeatedly asked the Chinese embassy in London for a statement, but haven't received a reply. Chinatown is an epicenter of London's Chinese community. Hardly anyone here wants to comment on the situation in Hong Kong. It's too sensitive. Those who do express an opinion tend to support the Chinese government and its influence in Hong Kong. Hong Kong should definitely have its right to make decisions, of course, that is true, because um, the separate policies, but I do believe that Hong Kong is an inseparable part of China. The Hong Kong economy like, is actually pretty bad these years, so I think um, it's good for Hong Kong people and also for mainland, I think, so some connection or something. The dissidents see it differently and march right through the middle of Chinatown. Finn Lau calls on the British government to impose sanctions on Hong Kong officials and to detach itself economically from China. They may be vocal uh, regarding Hong Kong issue, but on the other hand, we have some uh, ministers or maybe some, some other people would, would pursue for more uh, trading with, uh, with China, increasing our dependency on the Chinese market. I would say, well, we must, uh, well, change from this kind of inconsistent approach. In London, Finn Lau and the other activists can express their opinions publicly in front of the Chinese embassy. They dream that one day this will be possible again in Hong Kong too. We're going to take a short break now. When we come back, police and protesters in Spain have clashed over a possible amnesty for Catalan separatists and a volcano in Iceland has caused mass evacuations. We'll be right back. The World Health Organization's pandemic treaty is still a looming threat to our future. From Washington, D.C., this is the Morano Minute with your host, TNT Radio's Mark Morano. German Federal Minister of Health Dr. Karl Lauterbach had this to say about the World Health Organization's proposed pandemic treaty. If we do not have a pandemic agreement, I fear that we lose the momentum of the pandemic. And it's an open question uh, when we, if we will ever have a pandemic agreement. Let's hope the German Federal Minister of Health's warning rings true, that we lose momentum. A reminder, a pandemic treaty is nothing short of Bill Gates-funded scientists at the WHO declaring global instant lockdowns, stay-at-home orders, church closures, and vaccine and mask mandates. The World Health Organization would supersede all local authority 
and lockdowns would become global. This is our future, only if we allow it. Reject the Great Reset. This is Mark Morano for the Morano Minute on TNT Radio. Challenging the consensus and debunking the narrative. This is Viewpoint. While the mainstream media peddles fear with climate change alarmism, thousands of prominent scientists reject this pseudoscience. For example, Clintel was founded in 2019 by Emeritus Professor of Geophysics Gus Berghout and science journalist Marcel Kroc. This global network of 900 scientists and professionals issued the World Climate Declaration. There is no climate emergency, which was endorsed by numerous experts in the field, including professors of climatology and meteorology and other related scientific disciplines. Good environmental stewardship requires a strong economy. Genuine environmentalists understand this and that a destroyed economy will impoverish billions of people. This would not only be a humanitarian tragedy, but an environmental tragedy in the name of net zero carbon. Basil Valentine and Compass on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. And welcome back to the programme. Police in Madrid have clashed with protesters who oppose negotiations between Spain's acting government and Catalan separatist parties over a possible amnesty for thousands involved in Catalonia's independence movement. Several protesters waved Spanish flags and shouted insults against the acting prime minister, Pedro Sanchez, and some of them self-identified as Nazis in chance. The protesters pushed against barriers set by police in riot gear who responded with rubber bullets. Details now in this report from Reuters. Increasingly violent protests led by right-wing demonstrators have rocked Madrid in recent days over a widely unpopular deal between Spain's acting prime minister and Catalan separatists. The controversial deal will grant amnesty to separatist activists who attempted an illegal breakaway in 2017. In exchange, Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez will get their support, paving the way for him to remain in power. But opposition leaders described it as giving into blackmail by independence leaders and a sign the country was veering back to a dictatorship. The separatist party's founder, Carles Puigdemont, who has been living in exile in Belgium and faces charges as leader of Catalonia during the drive to secede, hailed the agreement as a change of narrative. After Sanchez's Socialist Party failed to clinch a majority in a July election, it was clear they would have to do a deal with smaller parties, including the hardline Catalan separatists, to gain the seats needed to form a government. Without their support, and with the vengeful opposition of the Conservative People's Party that controls the Senate, Sanchez's socialist could be paralyzed to pass legislation, including budgets, risking a vote of no confidence against him or the forcing of a snap election. Sanchez's conservative opponents have accused him of putting the rule of law on the line for his own political gain. Sanchez has secured the backing of two other regional parties, which all but assures him an absolute majority in the 350-member Congress in a vote due to take place in the coming days. Meanwhile, Spaniards have been called to show their outrage in town square demonstrations across the country on Sunday. 
One of the more divisive aspects of the amnesty deal protesters are upset with is that it would allow separatist leaders like Puigdemont to run for office again. Seismic activity has eased in southwest Iceland, but scientists still expect a volcanic eruption. Although more than 500 earthquakes have hit the Reykjavans Peninsula since midnight, they have been weaker than over the past two days. But experts stress a nine-mile river of magma running under the peninsula is still active, threatening the now-evacuated town of Grindavik. Most tremors have taken place under Grindavik and hundreds of people have been forced to flee. Cracks have emerged on town roads as subsidence takes its toll on the area. Details now in this report from the BBC. Well, scientists say seismic activity has decreased in southwest Iceland, where hundreds of people have had to leave their homes over fears over a volcanic eruption. More than a thousand earthquakes have hit the area since midnight, but they've mostly been weaker than those over the last couple of days. But experts do stress a 15-kilometre-long river of magma running under the peninsula is still active and poses a threat to nearby towns. Earlier on, I spoke to volcano expert Dr Evgenia Ilenskaya. She told me more about the significance of these moments. So I guess it's both unusual and not unusual. We know that this is this part of Iceland is very volcanically and seismically active. Um, and we know that every thousand years or so, we get a, peri- a long period of eruptions in this particular area. And pretty much right on time, uh, the last eruptions have finished about 800 years ago. And now we're just starting a new eruptive episode of fires, as they're called locally. So um, officials are evacuating people. Talk us through how dangerous this is. Uh, people were evacuated around midnight on Friday night uh, when um, there were geophysical data that showed uh, escalation of magma intruding under the ground. Um, so that's that's still the case. There, there, the likelihood of eruption is still considered very, very likely. Um, so people are yeah staying elsewhere at the moment, about 4,000 people. Iceland's Civil Protection Agency has talked about this magma tunnel currently forming underneath certain towns. Can you talk about that? Tell us what that is. Yeah, I think, so first of all, magma tunnel has, think, I think, been Google translated from Icelandic. There is a, the word that is used in English for this phenomenon is a dike, magma dike. So it's a vertical column of magma that comes from quite deep and can reach all the way to the surface. Uh, it, from geophysical measurements, both on the ground and from satellites, we could see that it was becoming very, very large and that it was inflating very, very rapidly. And this suggested that um, we could be going into a very large eruption. Luckily, over the last um, 12 hours or so, this inflation has uh, slowed down. So now the sort of the worst case scenario of a very large eruption is considered less likely, but the possibility of a smaller eruption is still very, very high. Iceland is not a big country geographically. Do you have enough space to move people to? Is it possible you'll have to move people out of the country altogether? Um, at the moment, that is quite unlikely. And Iceland is small, but it's quite a, maybe because of, of its small size, it is a very close-knit community. And out of the nearly 4,000 people who were evacuated, only about 100 have been staying in shelters and the rest have been accommodated by friends or family or um, just members of the public putting up their spare rooms and spare homes just you know, for, for people to stay. 
Um, it's, it's highly unlikely that there will be a, a very large-scale evacuation. But, but that being said, we can't rule anything out at this stage, but it is highly unlikely. At least 99 people died when an inferno destroyed the town of La Hena in the deadliest wildfire in modern American history. Though first-hand accounts, as well as police body cam footage and recordings, show a BBC investigation revealing why it was so hard to escape. And it has also uncovered mistakes from authorities, as we can hear now. In August, the most deadly wildfire in modern history tore through the town of Lahaina on the Hawaiian island of Maui. Its cause is still under investigation. Well, our reporter James Clayton has been investigating why it was so hard to escape the town. Lahaina was the gem of Maui in Hawaii. It's been near totally destroyed. It's unfathomable, the reality of Lahaina burning. Oh my God, they crossed. Ui was one of many residents who tried to escape from Lahaina that day. She managed to get some of her neighbours into her car, but when they set off, the traffic was gridlocked. And I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, we're not moving fast enough. we got to get out of here. There's, there's people back there, you know, it's just... How many cars behind you? <laughs> Hundreds. Many people had to abandon their cars and enter the sea to survive. Both sides to the left and the right are on fire. The BBC has obtained police body cam footage that shows that even officers were exasperated with the traffic jams. Why are the cars not moving? They just stopped traffic on both sides of the highway. But why was the traffic so bad? We already knew that an emergency siren had not been activated, but a BBC investigation has found other mistakes on the ground that contributed to the chaos. The police blocked some roads because they believed down power lines were energized. We want to make sure that you didn't go over a down live power line. But Hawaiian Electric has told the BBC that it told the police several times during the day that the power lines weren't energized. This is one recording of such a conversation given to the BBC by Hawaiian Electric. Hi, Nico, Police Department Fire yes. asking if you guys can shut down all of the electric off of Lahaina Luna above and below the bypass. It's off right now. It's all off? Yep. Okay, thank you. Okay, bye. The police, however, told the BBC that the company did not give clear and definitive confirmation that the lines were de-energised. The result was police treating fallen lines as live and blocking roads. One witness, Travis Miller, showed the BBC his footage. He filmed the main road going north out of the town, blocked for hours by the police. I knew, like, once I saw the roadblock, this is insane. People lost their lives that wouldn't have lost their lives. Maui's mayor, Richard Bisson, concedes the town should have been better prepared. You know, better preparation, right? I mean, that's what everybody is pointing to. And who should take responsibility for that? We all should take responsibility. Yeah, all of us, for sure. Ui and the neighbours she took in her car survived. Some of her neighbours, though, weren't so lucky. Some people go, you're a hero for saving them. They would have been dead. And I'm like, I'm not a hero. Do you know how many people I passed, evidently? That I didn't know about, that I didn't check on? So many things that should have happened that didn't happen. And finally today, the latest from the catastrophe in Gaza, where Amnesty International has urged European Union leaders to call for a ceasefire. 
The rights group says that European Union countries must call for an immediate ceasefire. The expanding humanitarian and human rights catastrophe unfolding in Gaza urgently needs to end, said the UK-based group. Meanwhile, also today, the United Nations staff have held a minute's silence for the 101 members of the United Nations Relief Agency to have been murdered in the conflict so far. And Gaza's Al-Aqsa Hospital has warned that babies may soon end up in mass graves. I'm Basil Valentine. I'll be back at the same time tomorrow. Hope you've enjoyed the programme.